it's just a natural progression that you can do more with less and that becomes more efficient and that has less of an environmental impact whether you're in the livestock business or the vegetable business or growing grain it doesn't matter it all correlates to to environmental footprint this is the real food real people podcast it's amazing that even with all the hard work they do and all the millions of details that they have to manage farmers always seem to be focused on the big picture and Jared Easterday, who we talked with this week on the Real Food, Real People podcast, is no exception to that. He's got some great insights to share from the big picture, but also shares with us the details about how bell peppers are grown here in Washington State. I didn't even know that was a big thing here, uh, but they do it in Pasco, Washington. Again, his name is Jared Easterday uh, in Pasco, Washington. We sat down with him around the kitchen table to find out all about his farming story, how he got into farming, and what so important to him right now. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop, and this is a project documenting my journeys all over Washington State to get to know the real people behind our food. Our sponsors are the Dairy Farmers of Washington. WaDairy.org is their website, and they're constantly sharing stories of the real people producing the dairy products in our state, as well as the real stories of the actual products themselves. And boy, this time of year, you know, recording this, or just coming up to Christmas time and the holidays, thinking about that eggnog. Uh, they've got some great recipes for all kinds of stuff around the holidays and year-round at wadairy.org. So check that out. Uh, we appreciate the Dairy Farmers of Washington for supporting this podcast. Also, Mana Insurance Group. Um, great folks. Uh, kind of a hometown-based insurance outfit um, that can connect you with all kinds of great providers. A lot of the big names. And they have offices now in Washington in uh, California and Arizona, uh, even though they started with humble beginnings, uh, you know, a classmate of mine started the business. Um, they do a lot of stuff now and certainly have uh, things that can help you protect your financial future, whether it's auto insurance, life insurance, you know, protecting your home, so many other things uh, that they do there at Mana Insurance Group, manainsurancegroup.com. So what do you all grow? Okay, so uh, we, uh, my wife and I, uh, grow crop farm primarily. Yeah. Uh, we grow potatoes, onions, and uh, bell peppers. Okay. Yep. So row crop, that can be, that's usually veggies basically is what you're talking about, right? Yeah, I mean, you could consider, you know, uh, corn and that sort of thing, row crop as well. But uh, primarily we're in the vegetable business. Yeah, so... Potatoes, onions, and bell peppers. What's the biggest one for you? As far as acres or acres, so focus dollars, whatever you know. What what's kind of your your biggest deal? So we grow. Uh, we probably grow more acres of potatoes than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as intensity, our onions and and peppers are more intense, I would say, than our potato production. Yeah, um, and then our, our bell peppers are probably the most input intensive. So bell peppers. Let's talk about that because we've talked, and I, I, I want to talk about the spuds and the and the onions and stuff as well. But we haven't talked with somebody growing bell peppers before. What's the trick? Well, and like you said, those are more intense, and that's what I would have expected. Yeah, they're an intense crop. You know, they're uh, they're a warm weather crop, so we plant them as transplants in the spring, late spring usually. Um, at some point in May, 
mm-hmm. and uh, we grow greens and reds. And a common misnomer is that they're two different plants, mm. but all a red pepper is is a mature green. Really? Yep. Even though you go to the store and you'll see the red ones and the green ones, and they're the same size. Yep. So those green ones, if you let them go longer, they just turn red? Yep, correct. They'll kind of turn <laughs> chocolate or rainbow in between there, yeah. and then they mature out as a red bell pepper. So what's the process with those? You plant them from seed? Nope. So we plant them as a transplant. Okay. So they're about, oh, four to six inches tall yep. when we get them. And they're raised in greenhouses or hothouses, primarily in yep. uh, Arizona or Southern California. Wow. And they're started about six weeks before we plan on planting them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're shipped up here, and then we go ahead and, and uh, transplant them into the ground. Um, they go through what's called transplant shock for about a week. Mm. where they're adjusting and acclimating to the climate and the, the new soil conditions. And yeah. then after that, we're off to the races. What's the key to get them, getting them through that? Because so, you know, that's the way red raspberries are planted. That's what I'm used to. But that's a dormant root that gets put in the dirt. You know, I remember being out there with my dad then having to transplant and you know, replace all the plants that didn't make it. Yep. Granted, this is an annual crop versus him where he's trying to make sure he's got raspberries that are going to be there for 5, 10, 15 years. Right. But do they, do they all make it? Do some of them die? I know for us, it was like keeping water to them. Right. So obviously water's, water's a huge part, especially here in the desert. Um, uh, but there's a percentage of them that don't make it, that won't take. Um, yeah. And uh, we just kind of figure that into, you know, hey, if we're going to plant, you know, say we're planting 100 plants, we would know that, you know, 5 to 10 of them probably won't make it on average. You know, a 90% stand would be... Yeah. Would be uh, um, I think pretty typical. So then, what do you got to do once they're healthy and growing? And how how long does it take? What's the season for those? So we raise ours. Uh, you know, we put them in in mid to late May, mm-hmm. and uh, we're harvesting greens in August. And then the reds. You know, we went all the way into October this year. Really? But we had a little bit of setbacks. We had kind of a cold, windy spring that slowed them down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had some wind damage that set some of them back. And so our red harvest, I would say, was probably a week to two weeks later than traditional. All the way into October, though? Yep. Do they, I mean, it gets cold over here. You'll get freezes and stuff in, what, September even probably sometimes. We can. We can get a killing frost late September. Um, you get past the 5th of October and things start getting dicey. So, you know, the yeah. goal is to have those reds out by the first week of October. So if you do get a freeze, is the field done then, basically? They don't like cold. Um, no. It'll fry the canopy pretty good. Sometimes the fruit will survive. Sometimes it doesn't. It just depends on on how hard the frost is and what the conditions are when it happens. And then how do you harvest those? Does that have to be done by hand? No, we mechanically harvest. Um, it's, a, it's a machine called a pick right. Um, it's very similar to a tomato harvester. Okay. And uh, it just uh, cuts the, the plant and takes the whole plant into the machine. and Okay, so like a, a bar that cuts them off kind of by the ground, pulls the whole plant in, yep. and then separates that, the actual peppers, from the leaves and the stems? Yeah, so ours, uh, there's two, two different kinds out there for the most part on the headers. Some use a sickle bar, mm-hmm. um, which is very common. Yep. Um, and then they also use rotary discs that would look like two big saw blades. Yeah. And so uh, you cut it off just below the ground. We usually run the blades about an inch, inch and a half below the ground, feed the plant into the machine, and then it's just got a, uh, some shakers with some fingers that shake most of the fruit off. 
Mm. And, uh, and uh, it moves on to the sorting table, and that's where we sort out dirt, leaves, foreign material, uh, rot, anything like that that we don't yeah. want to put in the truck. That's amazing that you can do that mechanically and still have a nice pepper coming out the end to send to people to eat. Right. And so, so all of our bell peppers go into uh, dice frozen. Okay. And so, um, if they get little, we can beat them up a little bit. Um, what a lot of people don't realize with mechanically harvesting, even though if you look, take a pick up a pepper, it may look fine, but it's probably got some microscopic cracks in it just mm. from handling it. Mm-hmm. And where we're dicing it within, they're going to cut it up and freeze it in 24 hours. Right. It's not an issue. Right. Um, all the peppers I've seen go into the fresh stream are handpicked. Yeah. Because of quality. Yeah, that would make sense to me. So they dice them up, and you guys make a lot of omelets better. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, uh, uh, we raise onions um, for that outfit as well. So, you know, those diced onions and diced peppers are what pizza companies buy and spread yeah. on their pizza, what um, sauce companies buy and put in their sauce, what mm. uh, you would buy at a gas station in a little, you know, totina roll, breakfast roll. That's where our product goes. Yeah. I'm just thinking you, you have the onions, you have the peppers, you need a little bit of ham, and you have an awesome omelet happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, onions, I and mean, we talked with Kevin Kutsk earlier this year on the podcast about growing onions. Um, I don't know if you saw that conversation. I would imagine your process here is pretty similar to what he's doing, but it's a lot of work, too. Yep, between everything to get those in and get them growing right and make that all happen. Yeah, so, you know, we'll plant, start planting onions in March um, and uh, for all from seed. And then uh, we get them up, get them established, get them cultivated, get them growing. Um, most of our onions uh, go into process, but we about 30% of what we raise would go into what I would call like a fresh pack avenue that would go into a grocery store or restaurant mm-hmm. food service. That sort of uh, business. And how far between your your onions and your peppers, how far and wide do those go? I mean, that's probably all over the country then. Yep. Do some of them even go beyond? Do they get exported? Yes, some are exported. Hmm. Um, Some make it to the East Coast. Some make it to Asia. It just depends on, you know, who's buying and and, uh, where the need is. And I guess that's interesting, being a frozen product, then timing isn't such a big deal like some of these other fresh crops. Because I'm thinking fresh peppers, they probably have to have all these different growing regions. Yep. Because nowadays everyone wants fresh bell peppers in the grocery store 365 days of the year. Right. And and in our climate, we can't do that. Right. Right. But no, that's that's like what I grew up in, in red raspberries. Lots of people would find out my dad's a raspberry grower. It's like, oh, so those are the berries in the store. Well, not those ones. <laughs> His are frozen because he only they're only fresh for, you know, three, four weeks. And that's it. Yep. Everything but you can has eat a life. So what, what's the biggest challenge? Labor is a challenge. Mm. Um, it would rank up there. Production cost yeah. and, uh, and water. Mm. And, you know, labor is, labor is necessary in food production. Yeah. And I, I think that's what a lot of people need to understand is that, that it takes labor to grow these products. It takes labor. If you want a nice, perfect pepper on your grocery store shelf, it takes labor to do that. And uh, <clears throat> access to labor, um, a labor force that is interested in the job, you know, mm-hmm. um, the labor force is changing. Yeah. They're, uh, 
their needs are different than they were 20 years ago. Their aspirations are different than they were 20 years ago. And that's just part of yeah. how things evolve. Yeah. But uh, labor is, it doesn't happen without people. And no matter what you do, you can't mechanize everything. I mean, we mechanize as much as we can yeah. for efficiency's sake. But at the end of the day, it takes good people to, to farm, to produce produce, to do anything to get food on people's plates. So why don't people want to come out and, you know, help with pepper harvest or, you know, help plant potatoes? I guess we haven't even talked about your potato stuff yet, but... So, you know, because again, you're saying, well, you may not harvest these things by hand, but it still takes people to operate the machinery, trucks, and be out there doing the stuff. You know, I think a lot of it is uh, the seasonality of it, the hours. Um, It's different than a lot of businesses. I mean, when you look at agriculture compared to anything else you're doing, you don't get a check every two weeks. You're not generally... Uh, in the crop production side, you're not selling something every week here, yeah. right? It's pretty seasonal. Yeah. And so going off of that, you have to realize that when it's go time, it's go time. And, and you don't have a choice because Mother Nature dictates so much of what happens in our business mm-hmm. that we don't have the choice to say, hey, we'll just pick it up where we left off tomorrow. And uh, I think that's really hard for some people to wrap their head around. It fits some people, you know, that like that. Yeah. Um, and others, it doesn't. But that's just the reality that if if something's out of your control and you can't control Mother Nature, you have to adapt to a yeah. certain extent. That's interesting. Yeah, different people have different lifestyles and are wired differently too. Some people want to clock in, clock out, 9 to 5, keep it steady. Other people, and maybe, I mean, this is the way I am, and maybe it's because I was raised in farming, but I like to go like crazy. And when it's go time, you know, I don't want to clock out at, five o'clock i just want to keep working and get the work done and then i want to have you know maybe a month off some other time of the year i just like that ebb and flow and i I know there are a lot of other people that do it but that doesn't is that because more and more people don't like living that kind of a lifestyle is that the reason it could be it could also be that they don't really understand it you know i mean it's it's okay say you work late on a friday night but you can take all a tuesday off well, in my book, that's pretty good, right? That's a good trade-off. Yeah. Or, hey, we're going to work 16, 18-hour days here to get the harvest done. After the harvest is done, hey, guys, we're done for a month. Like We have a few things to do here and there, but we don't have a gun to our head. Yeah. Some people like that. And I, I think not everybody understands that or has been exposed to the fact that the reality is is some things have to be done in a timely manner no matter what how you want to yeah. do it. It's It's mother nature is controlling some of that and, and the physiological evolution of the plant or the process of the plant mm-hmm. is dictating how you have to react to get that up and get it put away the way our system works though it seems to be pushing things in the other direction of nine to five clock in clock out that's the way the rules are being being developed right, right? and so if you look at like washington state you know they recently uh, went into overtime starting in 2022 for all agriculture employees. Um, Meaning that people get paid or have to be paid additionally for hours over 40 in a, well, it scales down, right? right? But eventually it will get there. Yep. So it starts at 55, then it goes 48 the next year, then 40. And so then it's time and a half after that. Right. But when that law was enacted, originally the exemption, people understood that 
you may put a lot of hours in from March to October and then not put very many hours in at all from October to March. And that's the seasonality aspect of what we do. It's not a factory. It's not just a nine to five job. It's not something that just clicks every day the same. Every day I get up, I do something different. And uh, I think a lot of guys would, would agree that every yeah. day brings a different challenge. And with that, you have to be able to adapt. Well, that's why the exemption was there in the first place is they understood that, hey, you're going to work a lot of hours when you have to, and then you don't. At the end of the year, if you make the same amount of money and you worked all your hours in a uh, nine-month period instead of a 12-month period, you're still taking home the same amount of money. It's just your yeah. hours were moved in different areas. Yeah. I, and I've said this before, but I took huge advantage of that when I was going through college because I could do farm work. I was, you know, custom planting corn for the local co-op when I was, and it lined up perfectly with my school year when corn planting season was. Well, I was putting in 70, 80, 90, sometimes 100 hours a week for a couple months, but I could pay for darn near my whole next year of college by doing that. Right. And so then, you know, I'd be at college and be... You know, other students would be like, oh, you know, I'm tired and this and that. I'm like, this is like vacation then for me the rest of the year. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it gives you the flexibility to do different things, if that makes sense. You're, you're, you're tied to it certain times of the year, but it also brings a freedom. I think a lot of people don't understand the rest of the year. So, with the change here in the state, what happens to that, that, that seasonal yeah. farm lifestyle? You know... Uh, guys are adapting. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of operations that have to hire more people mm. to split the amount of hours up. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I actually think that's detrimental to the employee. Mm. Because so it's I, not good for workers. Well, I, I don't think it's going to be good for everybody. That's for sure. Um, I think that in this country, you should be able to rise through your own work ethic. And I got guys that want to work. And, and, uh, and there's people all throughout this industry that want to work. And I think it's going to force uh, businesses to uh, curtail hours to manage costs, which I understand 100%. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the employee, he may make some overtime, but I don't know if it, he has that ability to really step out and, and uh, you know, realize his full potential that he wants to. Yeah, I've heard of people having to take second jobs to be able to make up the lost hours because their hours have already been cut because right of this. and 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 that's what i think you know of course i'm saying i think a lot because this is my perspective yeah but for sure i've been an employee and a business owner both and i'm a firm believer in you rise through your own merits and that should speak for itself and i don't understand how it can't break someone's heart to force people to find a second job to make the same amount of income that they could have made working one job and been happy. And had more time off to do cool things like travel. Or had the, like yeah, had the flexibility to, to have that choice. Hey, I'll put my hours in now because I know later I can go do something, right? Yeah. This is America. This is our freedom. People should have the ability to choose that, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as far as overtime, you know, people are going to adapt. That's what the American farmer has always done. He's figured out how to adapt to the environment that we're in. So I have no doubt that, that we'll continue to farm. We'll continue to produce, you know, livestock and produce and grain in this country. That, that's not a uh, question in my mind. Mm. 
but how we do it going forward is is going to be fundamentally different in a lot of ways in the next 20 years you talk about production costs being another challenge like what's what is that so in a lot of businesses you know say you're a manufacturer making xyz right widgets right (laughs) okay well your fuel went up your rent went up your production costs your labor goes up what do you do you mark your product up and whoever's buying it goes oh why did it go up and you say well it's going up 15 percent because my costs have gone up 15 percent in agriculture primarily we produce commodities and commodities don't get marked up based on cost of production so there's pros and cons to that commodities give you the highs and the lows but you got to manage your production cost well we know that in this country or the world in general our production costs are rising and that is a constant squeeze on the bottom line so just things get more expensive but it's not like you're making more on the other side to balance that out right right it uh it it depends you know on the the market the market dictates what you know, if there's a, if there, say there's a freeze in the southern United States and produce is short, well, the market's great, right? Well, if there's a glut of supply, the market's really bad regardless of your cost. And I think that's what a lot of people have to wrap your heads around is, is you're putting all that money out there with no guarantee of the revenue back, regardless of what it costs. Is it more expensive to do things here in Washington than other parts of the country? There's uh, probably some places that are more expensive, but we're one of the highest for sure. Because of what What are the higher costs in Washington? Uh, overhead, taxes, um, mm. regulatory cost, um, labor, uh, fuel. I mean, look at our fuel tax compared to the majority of the country, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just a higher cost environment to produce a commodity in. And so does that at some point make it, I mean, depends what your margin is, like you're talking about, the difference between your cost and what you actually get paid for the food that you're producing, does that get so thin at some point where it's not worth it anymore? Probably at some point. Hmm. I think that's why you've seen a lot of uh, agriculture production move, you know, across the oceans, because there are part of the fact is there's parts of the world that have cheaper production cost. I think what consumers need to realize is our food is the most safe and nutritious food in the world that we grow here in the United States. I'm very confident of that in our system. Um, We have the ability to produce food extremely efficiently as opposed to most places in the world. Yeah. There's a cost associated with that. If the American consumer wants to continue to have the best, then they probably are going to end up having to pay more for it down the road because it's going to cost me more to produce it. But how does that work then if it costs you more to produce it, but you can't control what the price you get for it is, how does that cost ever get passed on? You know, there's some vertical integration that guys are doing, direct marketing, that sort of thing. Um, I think the consumer likes the idea of the farmer, but doesn't really understand everything that happens between the food on their plate and the farmer. Mm. And so you've seen a lot of these programs that have tried to shift away from just selling a commodity product and to selling a branded product or a product into what we would call a program. You see that a lot in like the, the livestock, the beef industry, a lot of these branded programs to try to bring some of that premium back to the producer for what he's doing. And uh, I think you'll see more of that coming in all different aspects of agriculture. How did you get into all this? Did you, you grow up farming? So uh, my family's farm for generations. Um, 
my dad farmed for a while and then he he actually uh has a great engineering mind hmm. and so he loved building stuff so he got into heavy diesel mechanicing and and uh, fabricating when i was a young kid mm-hmm. and i so i grew up on a farm and i'd always been around it and but uh i always liked it and yeah. so when i was 16 i uh i rented some ground from a neighbor and i started growing seed corn 16 yeah. years old yeah. renting ground yeah and that's how i got wow. started and i had some I had some really good people um, that helped kind of me in my formative years getting into agriculture. Um, just a wealth of knowledge, guys that love seeing younger people get into agriculture. You know, I worked with an agronomist from the time I was 16 all the way till now that, I mean, he, he was very invested and uh, really intelligent and just, just did a lot to teach me just the basic fundamentals that I've, I still use to this day. When you're 16 years old. Renting ground to grow, you said seed corn. Yep. How many acres did you start with? Ten acres. Ten acres. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's where it all started. And how many acres do you oversee now between all your crops? Uh, we farm about 1,300. Wow. Yep. So it's gone up and down over the years, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, we farm different crops. We started out with seed corn, then we farmed corn and wheat. Um, then we, uh, we got into the cattle business, and we fed mm. some cattle, custom feeding cattle, just to get some income. Yeah. And kind of started growing our farm from there. And uh, then we got into the potatoes and that was kind of the first vegetable crop. And then we tried onions and then peppers. And now we kind of, we've kind of narrowed our focus just onto those three crops for now. Yeah. And uh, we think we can do a, a better job just by focusing on them. What kind of potatoes do you grow? And what, what do they become? How do I eat your potatoes? So about 70% of our potato production goes into French fries, mm. frozen French fry production. And then 30% would be a fresh pack that would go into a grocery store or food service. So like your kind of russet sort yep, of potatoes? They're, they're that- all russet, uh, russet uh, variety. Um, Norcota's into the fresh market, a few Burbanks, mm. uh, Burbank russet. And then uh, from the French fry side, we grow Ranger russet and uh, Clearwater russet. That's awesome. Yep. So, yeah, thinking about all the potatoes that come out of the state. A lot of them do go to French fries, right? That has a lot to do with just the facilities that are here, right? Yeah, so we have some major processors here, processing capacity. Um, we also have the highest yields in the country hmm. and probably the world here in the Columbia Basin. It's a great place to raise a potato. Why is that? Is that climate? Is it soil? Climate, soil, uh, water, um, varieties, um, access to the port, access to processors, yeah. power cost. You know, our hydroelectric power has created opportunities for processing and manufacturing in the northwest that i think a lot of people forget about but it's it's a real world uh, benefit to have affordable power and be able to do all of this and you mentioned water as a challenge as well what is the challenge for you i mean you guys there's an incredible system here of of managing water and being able to bring water to to crops and it's made this region that was desert into, you know, such a breadbasket. Yep. But what's the challenge? So the biggest challenge I, I see, I mean, and to kind of piggyback what you said there, without water, this country is desert here in the Columbia Basin. And so I just talked about how we probably raise the highest yield of potatoes in the world right here in the Columbia Basin. And the only reason that's possible is water. Mm. Having a consistent, reliable source of water, which we've been blessed with, but making sure we can continue to utilize that water to its fullest extent and to making sure it's secure. You know, we're on the Columbia River system, whether you're in groundwater 
for surface water here. I mean, it's, it's, it's a watershed, right? Mm-hmm. And there's different areas. Some have better water than others. Some have water that's deeper or shallower. But the reality is, is we've got this huge Columbia River that's fed with all of this water from southern Canada, Idaho, Washington, all down the line. And we use 2 to 4% of it for irrigation. That's all, really. That's all. all the water that comes down. And if you, if you look at one time, I don't know if it's true today, but at one time, the amount of water we drew out of the river was less than the high and low variance in mm. that river. And I think a lot of people need to wrap their head around that, that everybody wants to talk about Colorado, Colorado River Basin, California water problems. Yeah. Well, if you look at those systems, most of those systems are over-allocated for what they're trying to do with them. Now, there's environmental pressure um, for fish. Yep. I, I get that. There's municipal pressure for cities. Yeah, cities are getting bigger, and they right. use water. That's right. There's no way around that. They use water. But look at us. We're, we've got a great growing climate. We're five to 500 to 1,000 foot above sea level for the most part in the Columbia Basin, at least in the southern end. We have, all the, we have access to the great water source. It's good water. With our climate, we can grow about anything. We can grow more than we, can, than we know we can grow here today. And hmm. none of that's possible without a good, reliable source of water. So could that be taken away? Well, I think people have been trying to take it away from its inception. Hmm. You know, my grandfather was on the, uh, the uh, irrigation district board for years, and, and he spent a lot of time. He, he moved here in 57 when they were breaking out blocks and, and uh, spent a lot of time on water policy and, and trying to get the irrigation project, you know, sorted out. And my dad will talk about remembering him coming home in the 60s and 70s and talking about people trying to take water. Mm. How? How does that happen? What? What's the pressure? Well, um, some people just want to leave it in the river. They don't want to pull it out for anything. Mm-hmm. Some people want to argue about whose water it is and, and whose water right supersedes who. Um, and uh, some people want to take it and put it into a city. And some people maybe want to take it and put it somewhere else for irrigation. So people don't want it to come out of the river, even though it's a tiny fraction, like you said, 2 to 4% of the total amount of water, but that's still too much for some people. In some people's mind, right. Now, I would argue that if you look at the benefits that that water produces, they far outweigh the cons of of pulling water out of the river and using it to irrigate. So what's the pressure right now? What are people talking about right now? How would they even do that? Well, I mean... why you can't irrigate anymore? You've seen, obviously, they're adjudicating water in, uh, what is it, Roosevelt or... Uh, yeah. behind the dam, basically. Upper Columbia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think, I think what a lot of people have gone to is, is they're using the court system to try to shape policy. Mm. And so there's going to be a fight over whose water rights supersedes what. Well, at that point, um, you're going to have environmentalists vying to control some of that water. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue every farmer is an environmentalist because what we do every day ties into the environment, right? Yeah. Um, I want to use water as efficiently as possible because it's not good to waste. It doesn't do me any good to waste inputs at all, any right. input. Right. Um, there's, a, there's always been the, you know, the salmon argument, um, the mm-hmm. fish argument, um, and that's concerned dams you know, as far as fish migration and that sort of thing. But I just think that I, my dad told me this when I was a young kid. You know, he says, uh, well, you know what your grandpa would say? And I said, what? And he says, well... Whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. <laughs> and that is the story of water in the American West is, yeah. is it's been 
something to fight over. And I think you'll continue to see that pressure. Yeah, there's been more and more talk about taking dams out. Would that make it then hard to irrigate crops if they did? Uh, yeah, you know, there are some main stems that draw directly out of the Columbia or the snake. Um, if they took the four lower snake dams out, as I understand, a lot of those systems would have to extend their reach into the river. Well, that has to go through an environmental review process. Oh. Um, whether we like it or not, bureaucracy is part of this world. Yep. And anytime you're dealing with regulation or government entities, there's bureaucracy involved. So there's uncertainty there. Um, the other thing is, is it lowers the level of the river in some spots. And also your seasonal fluctuations change in the river much more than they would behind a dam where they're letting right. X amount of water out. Yeah, a lot of people think about the dams just in terms of hydropower, you know. But they're they, flood they, mitigation too. Yeah, they mitigate floods. They provide transportation, as I've been learning about the amount of wheat that goes up and down that river and other things yep. on barges. Wouldn't be possible without that. That's right. And then irrigation as well, like, yep. like we're discussing here. And I think a lot of people don't f realize, okay, well, you do that. And, and that's, you know, I think that's a good conversation to have. Is that a good thing or not? But you got to weigh all the factors if you are going to have that conversation. What are you going to lose if you do this on the other side? Not only that, but I think something people forget too is what are going to be the effects when they decide to pull that dam out and suddenly release everything that's maybe built up at the bottom of that dam? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure there's ways to mitigate it, but at the same time, we might be complicating our life more than anybody understands at the moment. Yeah. So, so you have family, a bunch of kiddos. Yeah, they're gonna. Are they gonna carry on the farm? What do you think? We'll see. I mean, they're young. It all depends yeah. on what they want to do. But you know, yeah. I got a six, a four, a two, and a baby. And uh, the three oldest are girls, and the youngest is a boy. And and uh, you know, agriculture is very much a family business and 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 a family way of life. And uh, you know, I I get excited at the thought of being able to pack up my six and four year old and put them in the pickup with me and go look at something. Even if it's for a couple minutes, even if it's for an hour, Hey, I got to go check water. Let's take the kids, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, just getting them out and about, and it's a great way to grow up. It really is. And, and, uh, I feel truly blessed to be able to have grown up that way. And I want my kids to be able to grow up that way. Yeah. Cause you may be, you may work an 18 hour day, but you could probably swing by the house five times in that day. Right. <laughs> grab a bite to eat, do this, do that. So you see the kids, they see you working or they can come with if right. they're old enough and you're doing the right thing. So you can still be with your family, even though you're working those long hours. Yeah. You know, and I, I give my two oldest daughters hell, you know, I say, well, you two are going to be my onion plant tractor or tractor operators here in a couple of years. <laughs> so you better brush up, you know I mean? It's just, it's just, it's hard to explain. Um, but it's, it's great from a family standpoint and even if they you know i mean if they don't want anything to do with it that's you know that's great that's what yeah. they, they need to find their passion i found my passion my passion was farming and agriculture and i i want nothing more than my kids to find the same sort of passion that really gets you know their brain going and, and really excites on them on what they want to do and if that's agriculture great if not so be it what drives your passion for it why do you love it so much you know it's uh Part of it's the challenge. Um, I, th I don't think a lot of people understand the challenges that can get thrown at you in this business. A lot of people would see that as a negative, though. 
right? But if you do something enough and it's not challenging, what's the fun, right? Yeah. And that's part of that is that endeavoring perseverance and, and uh, you know, longing to make something better. You know, I, I look at the basin just from when I grew up. You know, I'm 31 years old. And the amount of ground in the basin that's gone from siphon tube irrigation or real ground to center pivot production, which uses like 40% less water or 50% less water, right? I mean, it's huge yeah. water savings. Look at that evolution just in my short lifespan. Yeah. Um, look at the yields that we've been able to achieve with crops now that we never thought possible 20, 30, 40 years ago. There's a constant advancement of technology and efficiencies and that drive and that necessity to to find a better way to skin that cat is probably what does it for me more than anything. What about food? Making food that people eat. You know, we're we're all proud of that. Um, I think going out in a field, working your butt off, <laughs> you know, putting your crop up. One, it's great because you're like, I'm going to finally get paid, right? <laughs> Hopefully, right? Fingers crossed. <laughs> so, but <laughs> but more than that, I mean, we. We put food on people's plates. We feed the world. And it goes back to that that ever-longing pursuit of service almost in a way, yeah. right? It's a service to the world to become more efficient and do this better. It's also a service in the world to make sure nobody goes hungry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, we, we have to be efficient and we have to be affordable. And uh, that's one thing the American producer has done is we have the cheapest food costs in the world per capita when you look at it. And... Uh, there's a reason for that, and uh, that's pretty amazing. What about environmental footprint and stewardship, too? I mean, it sounds like from some of the challenges and the progress in the technology that you're explaining and efficiency, that's the direction you're going, too. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it takes, it takes more acres to produce the same amount of food and more inputs if your yield or your efficiency isn't there. And so the more efficient that you can get, the higher yield you can get, the better quality you can get. It's just a natural progression that you can do more with less and that becomes more efficient and that has less of an environmental impact. Whether you're in the livestock business or the vegetable business or growing grain, it doesn't matter. It all correlates to, to environmental footprint. You know, if I can raise a 35-ton potato crop on the same amount of fertilizer as a 30-ton crop, We'll look at the efficiency we gained or not yeah. even not even from an input standpoint but look at an acre of land mm-hmm. what can that acre of land produce in terms of total food versus what it could do 20 years ago or 40 years ago or yeah. in a different uh, production scenario yeah you went from animals for a while back to you know vegetable crops basically you miss working farming with animals i do uh the livestock business is intense yeah and that's when we started kind of getting back into growing our row crop farming, we wanted to grow something that was as intense as the livestock business, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's why we're into vegetable production, because it can be just as intense. And uh, um, it kind of just really fit with, with our model and what we wanted to do. So you thrive. I mean, you're describing, you know, things that are intense, challenges. Those are all positives to you. You know, most people be like, oh, that's too much work or, you know, it's too stressful, but you live for it. Well, I mean, there's nothing better than the feeling of getting everything thrown at you and coming out at the end and being like, guess what? We figured out how to make it work or how to get through. Yeah. I mean, that is that is a feeling that that is hard to describe. 
but that's that's how I would describe it. That's a lot different than clocking in, doing the nine to five, and making widgets. That's like right. we were talking about earlier. Right, just like oh, okay, I did my time. I made, but you can. I could just see you have so much pride in what you do, and that's because it's not just you know. And that's the thing. Go I through mean, the motions, right? And 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 it if it's some people to have a nine to five, right? I mean, yeah. everybody ticks differently, but. We put our blood, sweat, and tears in this thing, and we lay it all on the line every single time. And I, I don't think if you're not wired for that, it doesn't work. But for people that are wired for it, boy, boy it's a heck of a way to live. And, and I think it does everybody a service because of what we're able to achieve. Well, thanks for doing it. Yep. Thanks for growing awesome food and being efficient about it. And all these, yeah, very cool to hear about what you guys do here. Yeah. And thanks for having me and being on the podcast. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. Anytime. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. <laughs>